Physics World. Hello, and welcome to the Physics World Weekly Podcast. I'm Hamish Johnston. Coming up in this episode, we're going to be celebrating the 10th anniversary of the discovery of the Higgs boson at the Large Hadron Collider at CERN. But first, we continue our exploration of the effects of climate change with the physicist Freddie Otto, who works on the science of climate change attribution at Imperial College London. Freddie is in conversation with Physics World's James Dacey. Thanks for joining today, Freddie. You're welcome. Um, So we're talking about attribution science. One of the overall aims is to be able to to take an individual extreme weather event and to determine how much of a factor um, humans may have played in that or anthropogenic climate change. But can you just give a, a general sense of the process? How does that work? Yeah. So um, as, as you said, what we are, what we are aiming to do uh, in attribution of, of extreme events or also if they are not extreme, um, is to answer the question whether and to what extent they have been made more likely or more intense or less likely or less intense because of human-induced climate change. And the um, the idea behind that is actually very straightforward. So what we, in, in order to be able to do that, we um, first of all find out, well, what is the event that has actually happened that, that we're interested in? Say, well, it's currently quite warm here in London and a lot warmer in the rest of uh, Europe. So we could say, uh, the, the the heat wave of June 2022 uh, is is the event we would like to find out um, about the role of climate change in that one. So then the first thing is that we need to find out sort of the three days, um, say the 19th to the 22nd of, of of June, that were really what would make the the event exceptional and that led to impacts. So we then would say probably, okay, we defined the event as the June three-day maximum temperatures. Mm-hmm. And then we find out um, what kind of event is that in the world we live in today? Um, so is it a one in a hundred year event? Is it a one in 10 year event? Um, and to do that, we need to not only look at the observations, which give us the actual weather, but we need to look at the possible weather in the world we live in today. So we use um, observations and statistical modeling and climate models um, that that sort of simulate today's world of 1.2 degrees above pre-industrial temperatures and find out what is possible weather, what are possible maximum three-day temperatures in Europe in June, and might find that this is in today's climate, it's sort of a a one in 10 year event. So that in any given year, you have a 10% chance of such such an event to occur. And then um, to identify the role of climate change in this, um, we need to find out what kind of event would that be in a world without climate change. So what would be possible weather in the world without climate change? And because we know very well how many greenhouse gases have been put into the atmosphere since the beginning of the Industrial Revolution, we can take these out of the atmosphere of climate models, and we can also use statistical models to sort of scale um, the temperatures, 1.2 degree, um, so to scale the the, the actual weather observations mm-hmm. 
to a 1.2 degree cooler world. And then um, we ask the same question, what kind of event is it? And then we might find that in the world without climate change, this event would only have uh, been expected to occur, say, once in 200 years. And then you can say, because the only difference between these two um, types of simulations of possible weather is climate change, you can attribute the difference, so this 20 times increase in, in my example now, to climate change. And you can say, because of climate change, this event has become 20 times more likely. Or simultaneously, you could say that what is today um, the one in 10 year event has a three day maximum temperature of say 29 degrees, but in a world without climate change, the one in 10 year event would have a three day maximum temperature of only 25 degrees. And so mm -hmm. you can say that the intensity um, has increased by four degrees because of climate change. So, so you're kind of comparing the world as it is today, as we've affected it with an imaginary world in which we hadn't pumped all those gases into the atmosphere. It's a similar, it's exactly the same world with all the cities at the same place, with landscapes at the same place and, and so on. It's just with fewer greenhouse gases. So, mm -hmm. so the, the level of imagination is, is, is kind of mm -hmm. limited. Okay, and um, and I know this field has really come on leaps and bounds in the past two decades. There's been huge advancements. Um, I'm, I'm guessing a lot of that is due to data and computing power. I mean, can you give me a sense of how much more certainty we have now compared to, say, um, two decades ago with these studies? So the first study, the first ever study using this this idea, uh, has been done in 2004, and uh, and then there were a handful of studies between, say, 2004 and 2012, and, uh, and since 2012. So in this last decade, the science has really taken off. And um, so before, before we had... So what attribution of extreme weather is doing is um, it's linking what we observe and what we experience with um, the, the physical understanding and the projections of climate uh, of, of, of a changing climate and, and climate science. So basically it's linking meteorology and climate science. And so we did not, before we had attribution, we could, we had projections of, um, of future well, weather or climate changes in depending on different scenarios of possible emissions. And we have observations of weather, but those two were not linked. So what we can do now um, and, and uh, now also really, what we can do now that this science has been around for 10 years and has been applied to different types of events in different parts of the world, we start. We are starting to get an overview of what the impacts of climate change on our weather are. And we couldn't have done this without attribution. So I think that's, that's the, key, the key thing. So you've co-authored a new paper in the first issue of the new IOP journal, Environmental Research Climate. And, and so that um, reviews a lot of the science um, specifically relating to five different types of extreme weather event. Uh, can you maybe just explain what you tried to do with that review and, and perhaps pull out a couple of the key findings as well? Yes. Um, what we are aiming to do with this review is really basically saying, OK, now that this science, as you, as you just said, now that the science has been around, what can we say now? Um, that we couldn't uh, that we couldn't say before, and it's basically have from all these because while of course climate change does affect 
through the so-called thermodynamic effects, so through the warming uh, alone, um, different types of weather events in a similar way. So a warmer atmosphere can hold, um, can hold more water vapor that needs to get out of the atmosphere as heavy rainfall. So on average, we do expect to see more extreme rainfall. A warmer atmosphere also, of course, leads to um, more heat waves, fewer cold waves. But then there's the second effect, um, which I would call the dynamic effect. Because of we are changing the atmospheric composition and the temperature within the atmosphere, that does affect the atmospheric circulation. So where weather systems develop, how they move, and this these two effects always work together. So and they can work in the same direction. So that you get because of the warming, you get more extreme rainfall, but you also might have more low pressure systems bringing in rain, so you have overall a stronger increase in heavy rainfall than expected. But those two effects can also counteract each other, and so you might actually not see any any changes in a particular region. And, and of course, um, this, this is why, a priori, you can't say, okay, climate change made this heat wave 100 times more likely. You have to actually look at, at the event. And... Um, when attribution science started to be around, it was really for every different type of event and for every new event, there, there was a new study. And we, well, we have, of course, had, because of the thermodynamics, we had some ideas of what it might look like, but we didn't know. But now the question is really, okay, now we have all these different studies and many, so for example, there are lots of attribution studies on European summer heat waves, on, on heat waves in general. Um, there are lots of studies on heavy rainfall, um, and not so many studies on droughts, but there are studies on, on droughts. So what, what sort of is the state of our understanding right now and what climate change means to our weather or has meant to our weather so far? And that's what, what we aim to do in, in this study that we say, okay, for heat waves, we basically now know that every heat wave has been made more likely and more intense because of climate change. So we really don't have to ask the does climate pl change play a role question, um, but we can then ask, well, how large is the role of climate change if we want to do a study? But if you just want to know, is climate change a factor here? You actually don't need to do a study for heat waves. Mm -hmm. um, that's quite different, for example, for droughts, where, um, where it's very different depending on what part of the world you're looking at, whether there is actually a climate change signal or not. In Southern Africa, there, has, there have been a few studies that show a strong increase in drought, but in most other parts, even the the very drought prone, especially actually some of the most drought prone areas like Eastern Africa or so, um, you don't actually see a signal from climate change. And so this is, this is sort of what the review goes through, mm -hmm. through some of the most impactful ex types of extremist events and, and shows what we know, what, what sort of generalities we can say now and where do we have actually still lots and lots of questions? Because that, that was an interesting thing in the review where you, you spoke about, I think it was relating to droughts, how um, it, it seems to be that perhaps climate change has played a role in lots of cases, but because there's lots of other factors as well, such as poverty and I guess land use change, and it, it only becomes a problem if it's in certain places and it overlaps with certain vulnerable populations. So uh, in terms of the bigger picture, looking at attribution science, um, how far away from the kind of initial climate input do you think you'll be able to 
take it in the future? Is, is, is it just a case of understanding these links a bit better, the links between climate and the actual real world impact on somebody's life? So one thing that I think one one of the key conclusions that we that we draw is is that um, th really how extreme the weather event is in terms of how how rare it is um, is is a very small factor in driving the impacts. The impacts are really almost completely driven by by exposure and vulnerability. And when you have very high vulnerability, um, and there are quite a few examples where very common events have disastrous consequences because because the um yeah the the vulnerability is is mm. is so high and i think this is so this is really to to shed light on how much actually does the weather play a role and how much is is driven through these um, other two aspects of the drivers of a disaster is is one of the important uh, findings and I think also going forward that doing attribution studies without looking at exposure and vulnerability is really not terribly informative. Mm. Um, and how far we can go? Well, at the moment, um, this review is really looking at the the weather components. So I think the 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 most um, sort of non weathery <laughs> event we are looking at is a wildfires where you have a combination of, of of heat and drought and and low humidity but uh, especially wildfires are also of course a very important example of whether or not you would then actually have a wildfire also depends strongly on well is there fuel available well, how is the forest managed and and so on and so um I think we are able to go further down towards impacts, so towards also economic impacts and and on um, and maybe to go from fire weather to actual area burned, um, which which that again helps to to highlight um, the, these these other factors, mm -hmm. but of course um, that brings a whole range of different kinds of uncertainties, different kinds of methods, and even in the in the in the things like flooding where looking at the rainfall is quite routine now, but then looking at what how that translates into river flow, while you can easily compare one climate model with another, you cannot easily compare one hydrological model with another because they are um, just from, or the climate models are all sort of based on the Navier-Stokes equation. So the conversation of, the, uh, of, of momentum and sort of very basic or very fundamental physical laws, whereas hydrological models are not. They are much more em empirical. Um, and, and so one model can be very unlike the other. And so just, yeah, assessing the uncertainties and assessing how much confidence we have in these results is, is quite different uh, when we go from the weather and the climate towards towards more impact-based measures. Mm -hmm. But I, I suppose one of the big advantages of this type of study over the traditional peer-reviewed science is, is the fact you get a much faster um, result. You get, you get something you can say while an event is still in the public sphere. Um, well, that is just because we... well. But that is not because it's sort of fundamentally different science than classical climate science. I think in terms of hours that we put into these fast studies, it's actually it's it's the same as you would as the hours uh, and you would put into a usual peer-reviewed study. It's just that we have um, with world weather attribution, we have built up this this initiative where we have. Uh, 
an increasingly large group of scientists around the world who know what to do. So who have done attribution studies before, who sort of um, who know how to do it and who are willing to drop everything else and just uh, come together in a large team. We are usually uh, around 20 people. It's not. Uh, yeah, there are some people who are always involved, but hmm. um, but mostly it's it's not always the same 20 people, but they then spend a lot of their time within uh, within a week or so on this study so that in effect you do all the same things you would also do in a peer-reviewed study it's just um divided up between more people and really done um under a huge time pressure so my job is always to say okay we have to do this by now you have to do this we have to make this decision now so i think it's it's really just doing the same things but because um we do sort of the same kind of re of, of of study um you know the steps and everyone mm -hmm. knows what they are what they have to do and you know what decisions you have to make um and and you just make that faster. Mm. Well, obviously in a, in a podcast like this, we can speak at length and we can talk about the, the process and everything, but in, in the sort of daily news cycle, whenever there's an event, you often find the attribution science aspect is reduced to a single sentence. You know, this, this heat event in New York City is 50% likely due to climate change. D do you wish that maybe journalists went a bit further and perhaps tried to put that figure in a bit more context or or are you just happy that at least it's it's something which can happen while the public is still engaged in a particular event well <laughs> <laughs> i think for a long time i was really just really really happy when these when when this when the when climate change was mentioned at all and 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 of course when we have scientific evidence that we can that we can provide then also what the role of climate change is. So I think that that is a big achievement and has really changed also how journalists approach talking about extreme weather. But um, I think it really, by reducing it to one number, it really diminishes um, the hugely important role of vulnerability, which is usually what actually drives the disaster. And, and so... Um, and while our reports always have a long section and, and key findings on the role of vulnerability, um, of course, they are not just one number, but you have to explain them in, in a few sentences. And so, um, yeah, I think that's one of the key things I really want to be getting better at with our World Weather Attribution Initiative, that we, that we communicate the vulnerability and exposure aspect in such a snappy and easily digestible way that it can be reported alongside the numbers i think because i think that is just crucial to to understand the role of climate change and and how it exacerbates in, uh, vulnerabilities and how just also adaptation will only work if we focus on reducing vulnerability and not if we just focus on on the physical um, I, th event. I think that's the danger because people yeah, they'll, they'll read a news story and it'll have this figure, 60%, 70%, and, and they'll kind of conflate that figure with the entire disaster and the death toll. And it, it just, yeah, it, it would be better if there was at least a bit more context um, in the reporting. I would say there are quite good examples. So that there, it's not that every news report is only, uh, only reducing it to one number. Mm -hmm. It's, yeah, it's always the headlines, but <laughs> often... 
uh, yeah, I think there is there's increasingly good climate journalism that 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 does this this link. Okay, and, and with the network which you, you co-founded, I know um, one of the bigger goals is to take a longer term view and, and try to, to shape policy as well um, based on, on that data and those studies. Would you say that so far policymakers are listening and this, this is having an impact on, on longer term policy strategy? Um, well, I think it is definitely having an impact in so far as it has, I think, really help change the public um, discussion about climate change, that is not just discussed as something that will happen sometime in the future, um, but, but that there is this realization that climate change is already happening here and now. Um, I think this um, and that sort of, I think that the realization that adaptation is necessary and not just a good to have, and you can't say mitigation or adaptation, but that both is necessary, is is there. But I think what's definitely missing is that the adaptation aspect gets the same kind of rigor, uh, and I might mean political rigor, in that um, it's it's not thought about in a systematic way it's not thought about into what where are we most vulnerable where do we um, have to prioritize uh, in in sort of thinking strategically around what are different uh, adaptation options um, which ones are actually um, making the largest part of our population more resilient this this kind of thinking is completely missing I, I mm-hmm. feel in in the political decision making I think there's some there's some examples of co-benefits now, especially around urban heating. But yes. a lot of it is still in the academic field. It's, it's start, it seems to be starting to to pass over. Yes. So there are there are some some really good examples of how, the importance of early warning, particularly actually in the uh, in the developing world. So um, where uh, early warning systems don't only exist, but also People do so. Bangladesh or India uh, are, are good examples where people not only receive early warnings but actually know what to do with them and and have sort of uh, and, and therefore lives can be saved, which is something that, um, for example, in um, in 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 the global north, is not really uh, happening. So I think the the floods that happened in Germany and Belgium and the Netherlands uh, last summer were a good example of that. Well, there was early warning, but that did not reach the people who needed to be to be reached. And those and, and if it did, then they had no idea what what to do or how to react with that. And I think that's that's one important thing where we do have quite a lot of good examples. But yeah, uh, of course, the co-benefits, particularly the way, okay, how would we have to redesign our cities to not only get to a lot lower carbon emissions, but also to be resilient to heat and also make us all healthier. That's all there, mm-hmm. blindingly obvious on mm-hmm. academic papers, but it, I, I don't see it happening really in the real world. Another aspect of it is, is the climate justice side. And I, I know you've been involved, I don't know whether directly or tangentially, with some cases. Um, and we're starting to see attribution sites feed into, into this legal system. Do you think as this attribution field develops further, we're going to see more litigation? 
I mean, there's the high-profile example at the moment of the farmer in the Andes who's raised a case against the German energy company RWE. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. So I think the the case, uh, the RWE case, uh, is is sort of the first prominent one amongst many cases that we will see like this. And there have been some some cases like that that have been less prominent, but uh, I think. Um, that case is um, because it's the first one where the court actually said, yeah, um, this is this is a case for the courts and we need to see the evidence and uh, and and um, and taking it really seriously. That's a huge step forward. So and that um, and there are many cases already being filed and have been filed that are like that. So there there in Switzerland, there are um there are cases by uh, by a group of uh, of elderly women uh, because of the heat wave damages, um, and yeah, there are, there's an increasing number of these cases happening and in preparation. And uh, I think it's it's not, of course, it's not a silver bullet, but uh, I think it is an important lever to particularly help um, getting companies like RWE to change to to really force them to change their business model. And of course, this, this one case won't do that. Um, but if, if, if litigation risk becomes really a factor and, and an important uh, threat to these companies, that will help them to change their, their business model faster. And I think, therefore, it's, it's important. Do you think the key for these cases to, be, to have more likelihood of, of success is, is for more scientists to get involved directly in the litigation process? Or do you think it's more a case of um, just awareness raising and showing the power of these studies now to, to people who work in the courts? So I think it's, um, I think the bottleneck at the moment is, or the, is the, the, the communication, because we have done a study led by well, one of my PhD students looking at the role of science in 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 past cases and found that actually the the scientific evidence provided has been really poor so um the 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 cases that they have not used the strongest scientific evidence that was available not the latest um methodological advances in in attribution science or have um have filed for cases where actually there is no climate change signal in in the event, so there is a huge communication um, job to be done um, for 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 science to to sort of um, provide a better public understanding of what is actually the role of climate change in different types of weather events, because not everything bad that happens in the world is because of climate change. Um, and I think this this is um, sort of from. We have come in the public awareness from, oh, you can't attribute individual weather events, which, well, now we can, but now it's sort of swinging the other way that now suddenly everything that's happening mm. is immediately perceived to be because of climate change. And of course, that's also not the case. And so one of the aims of our review paper is to show these differences. Okay, Freddie. Well, uh, thanks for your time, Sarah. I hope the review paper can have a good impact. Thank you. That was Freddie Otto in conversation with James Dacey. Freddie's review paper is called Extreme Weather Impacts of Climate Change, an Attribution Perspective. 
It's open access, and it's published in the journal Environmental Research Climate, which can be found on the IOP Science website. On the 4th of July 2012, I was very lucky to be at CERN in Geneva when it was announced that physicists working on the Large Hadron Collider had discovered the Higgs boson. As a member of the press, I was not in the main auditorium where the announcement was made, but it was exhilarating nonetheless to be surrounded by particle physicists who were overjoyed that the elusive particle had finally been tracked down 48 years after it had first been predicted. That very next year, Francois Englert and Peter Higgs shared the Nobel Prize for their 1964 prediction, and the rest is history. Now, 10 years on, Physics World magazine is celebrating the discovery of the Higgs in the July issue, which focuses on particle physics. To talk about the issue, I'm joined by Physics World's editor-in-chief, Mateen Durrani. Hi, Mateen. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, Hamish. Nice to be on again. Now, I can remember that day in July as an emotional one for many. I'm sure that I saw a few people crying in the corridors of, of CERN, t- uh, crying tears of joy. And in the July issue of Physics World, uh, columnist Bob Kreese was inspired by Peter Higgs shedding a tear that day to talk about the emotions of physicists. Can, can you talk a bit about uh, about his column and what he said? Yeah, well, it was captured on camera. Peter Higgs was in the audience on that day 10 years ago. Um, he was one of the invited dignitaries. And I think he was sort of halfway at the back of the main auditorium. And I think it was only later that on video, people noticed that he'd taken off his glasses, he took his tissue out, he dabbed his eyes. And um, obviously the emotion got to him. So the question for Bob Kreese that he's tackled is, you know, are were his emotions just because Peter Higgs is quite an emotional person or were his emotions signifying a deeper um, passion that people who do physics have? You know, which is it? Was Peter Higgs an emotional man or are those emotions the result of physics being uh, a subject that is close to so many people's hearts? And that, that's what he talks about in, in the July issue. And, and I think he mentions in his article uh, uh, an anecdote about Paul Dirac, who, who famously is, is described as a person who <laughs> maybe doesn't have emotions. And a story about Dirac getting very upset because he, he went to the library in hopes of 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 solving a, a mathematical problem, only to discover that the library was closed and, and was very upset that he had to come back the next day and, you know, sort of questioning whether that emotion <laughs> affected uh, Dirac's <laughs> discovery. Yeah, that was a nice little story. I hadn't heard that one before, but uh, yeah, we, we all know Paul Dirac to be a very cold and uh, seemingly unemotional person, but that anecdote uh, belied that. And, you know, he revealed his inner passion for physics when he got quite um, snappy when he couldn't get to the library to get to some books to do the work that he wanted. So, yeah, that was another great example. And uh, I mean, I have to admit, I, I probably did shed a tear or two on the day. Um, so I can, cer- I can certainly sympathize with Peter Higgs and, uh, and everybody else at CERN who, was, <laughs> who were getting very, very emotional. And, and one of the people uh, who, uh, who worked at CERN, who, who was there that day, is uh, Achintia Rao. 
And he was working in the communications office of the CMS experiment. That's one of the experiments on the LHC that was involved in the discovery of uh, the Higgs boson. And he's, he's written an article for us about um, what it was like on the day and also the, the run-up to the uh, to the discovery, and it's almost a, a sort of a, a running commentary, a bit like a you know you get at a football match about uh, about what happened. I, I thought that was a really interesting article by uh, Achintya. Yeah, we got him to look back, uh, you know, to ten years to when he was working at CERN and describe um, you know the build up to the day, what it actually involved, because of course people knew that one day the Higgs boson would be discovered, and people had plans in place about what they would do to um, mark its discovery. So he kind of lifts the lid on the build up and what happened on the day, running the press conference, um, and he had his story ready so that when the announcement was made, he could flick the switch. There was work on social media, and probably that was one of the first times social media really came to prominence in a big physics discovery. And um, the most interesting thing, which he starts the article with, is the huge queue of students desperate to make it into that main auditorium. He went home the night before um, at about midnight, and there were a couple of people with sleeping bags. Next morning, when he got in at 6 a.m., you know, the queue had gone down the stairs, it had gone past the post office, through the restaurant and kind of out. And, it, you know, unbelievable, you know, scenes of people desperate to catch a glimpse of the announcement. And uh, the auditorium can only hold a, a certain number of people. So I'm not, I'm not sure how many of those people got in, but there were sort of overflow areas. And um, yeah, great article that, where he looks back at, um, at the time of the discovery. Yeah, I, I thought that was really interesting. And also, you know, he was talking about... Um, um, you know, how secretive, um, you know, the process of, of uh, sort of unraveling the Higgs was. And I suppose it was secretive because, um, the, the, you know, the physicists didn't want to introduce any bias into um, their analysis. And, and I'll never forget in the, you know, in the run up to the announcements, um, I had an email from from Jim Al-Khalili, who I think even 10 years ago was a bit of a celebrity physicist. And, uh, and Jim was asking me if I knew anything about, uh, about the Higgs announcement and, and you know, sort of uh, speculating on, on whether it would be announced or not. And, uh, and I thought, you know, back then, I thought that was really interesting because I thought, you know, surely Jim, who's a, uh, you know, sort of a working nuclear physicist um, and, you know, a bit of a celeb, might have uh, the, the inside track on the Higgs boson. But it seemed like, uh, you know, he was in, in the dark as much as, uh, as we were on physics world. Now, 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 Mateen, of course, CERN is not the only particle physics lab in the world. And the, the July issue also has uh, two articles about Fermilab, another huge uh, player in particle physics. And, and one of those articles is about the pioneering accelerator physicist Helen Edwards, who oversaw the construction and implementation of the Tevatron Collider, which I suppose was, is, we can see as sort of a precursor to the LHC. Can, can you tell us a bit about um, Helen Edwards? Yeah, she's an American who was born in um, 1936, and she did her degree and a PhD at Cornell University. And um, when she was there, she worked with Robert Wilson. And of course, he was the founding director of Fermilab. So he left Cornell for Fermilab in 1970. And then quite quickly, he appointed her as um, associate head of boosters. And then she became head of the accelerator division. 
And so her role there at Fermilab, she essentially designed, built, and commissioned the Tevatron, um, which was a proton-antiproton collider. And, um, you know, her speciality was superconducting magnets. And, um, you know, she was a brilliant experimentalist, by all accounts, you know, a pretty fearsome character who didn't take any nonsense, just, you know, got, got the job done, whatever needed to be done, she got done. Um, and would often spend time in the tunnels developing the, you know, the building the machine. And they became known as the, her and her team as the tunnel rats, which I thought was quite a nice little description. <laughs> um, in 2011, when it, the Tevatron eventually shut down, she was the guest of honor in turning the thing off. And there's a nice little anecdote in the story about she pressed a, a button and the machine wouldn't actually turn off. <laughs> and then she had to try again and, and then it went off. Um, Sadly, she died uh, six years ago in 2016 at the age of 80. So it's a lovely profile by Anita Chandran about Helen Edwards. So definitely worth reading more about somebody who's perhaps not that well known. And I hope the feature will bring her more to prominence. Oh, that's interesting because, you know, of course, Wilson is the name that comes to mind when you think of Fermilab. And, um, you know, I suppose you sort of get the idea that uh, that he did it all himself. Uh, you know, I'm sure he made some very important contributions, but it's it's interesting to hear about um, other people who played crucial roles in the uh, in the development of the Tevatron. And so sort of fast forward to today, there, there's another profile of another accelerator physicist, Leah Merminga, who is the current director of Fermilab. So what, what's her vision for the future of Fermilab now that uh, the Tevatron has shut down? So Leah Merminga, she's a Greek um Originally, um, she did her first degree in, I think, Athens and PhD in Columbia. So she's just been appointed um, head of Fermilab earlier this year. Um, and so the article in Physics World by Laura Hiscott profiles her career to date, uh, um, her background. Uh, Leah Miming's a little bit coy about what her plans are because what she wants to do is first take soundings from staff, go on a listening tour. Um, but she promises that Fermilab will, quote, lead the world in particle physics and accelerator science, technology and innovation. And she's also very keen to build up a, a diverse and what she calls world-class workforce. So she's been a little bit um, coy about what her plans are. I think she'll reveal them in full later this year. But I think it's very interesting that now CERN and Fermilab, the two big physics labs, are both currently being run by women for the first time, which... Um, you know, is fantastic. Mm -hmm, definitely. And and talking about the future, Mateen, um, there, there's an article uh, in, in the July issue of Physics World by Michael Riordan about um, what it will, what the future will bring for the particle physics community. And um, uh, I have to say, he, he is a bit gloomy, isn't he? Because he looks at um, current geopolitical conflicts and um, how they could have a negative impact on future international cooperation on building huge colliders, the next big collider. Well, that's right. Michael Riordan is, a, dare I say, a veteran uh, analyst of particle physics facilities. And he, he's written about the history of the superconducting supercollider in the US, which, of course, was an incredibly ambitious plan that floundered because costs were rising and because it was seen as a, a sort of an American nationalistic project the Americans were reluctant to get other countries involved. And 
essentially for him, CERN has been the pioneer of doing projects on an international base and very successful. Unfortunately, with the Russian invasion of Ukraine, uh, they are being excluded from well, Russian physicists, particle physicists, excluded from future projects at CERN. Um, which is the first signs, as far as he's concerned, that this sort of glory age of international cooperation may be coming to an end. Um, we've heard that in Japan, they're planning plans for an international linear collider are slightly in question after a report earlier this year made the notion that the project might be shelved for the time being. And that also leaves um, in the forefront, one of the other big projects is China planning an electron-positron collider and Michael Riordan wonders, with China not having enough experience in the area, whether they can really be bold enough to pull that project off. Um, and he really paints CERN as the um, leading lights in international collaboration and, and how they built up an environment where it's the scientists who run the project and it's not being ham hamstrung by engineers. So it's really it's a science project, pure and simple. And... Um, so, yeah, he's a little bit gloomy about the future, um, but, you know, others may still think that uh, we may still pull together, as we have for the last 70 years, led by CERN. Yeah, well, well, that's great. Um, and, of course, um, I think this week the, the LHC has fired up, hasn't it, uh, or in the process of firing up. So, yeah, they're, um, they're on their so-called run three. So that, uh, in fact, they're going to take much more data than they have had so far. So there's plenty still to be excited about. Well, that's great, and you know maybe, maybe they'll discover something very exciting that will um, that will have an impact on on plans for future uh, experiments. Um, we, we we could live in hope. So so what else can readers look forward to in the July issue? Well, we mentioned Achintya Rao. What he's also done is reviewed uh, the latest book by Frank Close, uh, which is a biography of Peter Higgs. Um, Frank Close is quite good friends with Peter Higgs. Um, Frank Close is at Oxford, Peter Higgs at Edinburgh. And I think it was quite a tough book to write because Peter Higgs is quite a reluctant speaker. He's a bit of a recluse. Um, he doesn't apparently have a computer or a phone, uh, a mobile phone. He just has a landline. So um, that is um, in the issue review of that book. And we've also got at the very back of the issue, Daniel Whiteside and George A. Cham, who is the mountain behind PhD Comics. They've done a great little cartoon for the Lateral Thoughts page about the past and present of um, the Higgs boson. So that's a little treat in cartoon format. Yeah, I, I really enjoyed that, uh, that, that cartoon. I mean, again, perhaps a bit gloomy <laughs> about the future of particle physics, but nonetheless, I think it really captures the last 10 years. The July issue of Physics World magazine is available in print and online for members of the Institute of Physics. And all the articles that we've mentioned will also be uploaded to the Physics World website throughout this month. Thanks for being on the podcast, Mateen. Thanks for inviting me, Hamish. I'm afraid that's all the time we have for this week's podcast. Thanks to Freddie Otto, James Dacey, and Mateen Durrani for joining me today. And a special thanks to our producer, Fred Isles. We'll be back again next week, but in the meantime, do check out the latest episode of the Physics World Stories podcast. 
Host Andrew Gluster speaks with Achincha Rao and particle physicist Christina Botta about their recollections of the discovery of the Higgs boson. Physics World.